Welcome to a brand new episode of Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. I'm your host, Tim Friedman, joined by fellow Clevelander and rock and roll expert, Frank Ost. Nice to see you again. Thanks. Hall of Fame inductees, we are up to, or down to as we count backwards, 2014, and the E Street Band was first up. They were inducted by frontman Bruce Springsteen. That was not the first time that a backup band or backup singers were inducted following the frontman, the Miracles with Smokey Robinson and the Crickets, were inducted years later after Buddy Holly. That's Not right. without controversy, I might add. Uh, quite a lot of controversy. I don't know how you could put Bruce Springsteen in there and not have the E Street Band. They were part and parcel of the whole thing. And the E Street Band was not inducted in the performer category, but in the musical excellence category like Ringo Starr was. Oh, my goodness. Peter Gabriel, what'd you think? I love Peter Gabriel. Um, one of the greatest concerts I ever saw was he uh, doing the Secret World Tour at the old uh, Coliseum, uh, one of the last concerts I saw there, and it was really a multi-visual uh, and audio spectacular. It had to be 81, 79, 80 right uh, now? Probably a little later than that, probably more like mid, early to mid-90s maybe, early 90s. So he was part of Genesis and then left in the mid-70s, I do believe. Right. And right. then when Peter Gabriel left, did that leave them with the three? Yeah, actually, when he left, and I think uh, one other, Steve Hackett left at about the same time, so they went from five to three, and so that's when they came up with the catchy phrase, and then there were three. And then there were three. <laughs> Hall of Notes, one of the songs they sang, which is my favorite of theirs, is She's Gone. They uh, oh, were inducted. Oh, love that song. Yeah, by Questlove was uh, the the fellow who introduced Hall & Oates. Interesting choice. Very interesting. I'm not sure I know who Mr. Love is, but uh, it uh, they des- certainly deserve to be in there. And Hall & Oates, we talked about this earlier. They're the first band from Philadelphia to be inducted, and the first thing Daryl Hall said was, why are we the first band from Philadelphia exactly. to be inducted? What about Todd Rundgren, mm-hmm. the stylistics, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes? And to me, if you're going to induct Janet Jackson, the Jacksons, Donna Summer, you know, the Miracles. That's right. Then you have to have the stylistics and the spinners in there. Oh, absolutely. Not to mention Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Right. Those guys all belong. Maybe they'll get in someday. We sure hope so. Kiss. What did you think about that that choice? Not my cup of tea, but certainly worthy of Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame-ness. Uh, they, they did it all. They had huge tours and uh, some good albums. I uh, didn't listen to a whole lot of it myself, but I know enough about them to know that they are definitely an excellent group. Great stage band, great show. I never saw them in concert, but I had a lot of friends in high school who were big Kiss fans in the mid-70s to the late 70s. They just loved Kiss. Maybe it was because of the makeup. Maybe it was because of the music. Uh, I like the music. I really like Beth. I thought that was a good song. Like Foreigner. I well, wish they had, they had a lot of great more, songs, sure. Yeah, I wish they had done more ballads. Beth was actually written by Peter Chris long before the That's band right. actually got together. Like in 1970, they put that out maybe five years later, six years later. Nirvana, the Seattle band, bringing in the grunge era of the 1990s. What'd you think of Nirvana? Uh, love them. Um, wonder what would have happened had uh, Kurt Cobain lived. Uh, we've talked about this before, but I, I really believe that had he lived. Uh, both Pearl Jam and Nirvana would have 
been better than what they turned out to be, would have been more known, more... Say, well, that but, competition would have sparked each exactly. other's creative juices, and a Green Day you can put in that category as well. Kind of like a Rolling Stones and, and The Who and um And the, the other Beatles. British Invasion yeah, bands, yeah. Exactly, how they pushed each other along. I think those bands would have pushed each other. Our featured artist in our next episode is Linda Ronstadt. She was inducted in 2014 by Eagle Glenn Fry. Beautiful girl and a beautiful voice. What can you say? Cat Stevens, he has come out with that uh, T for the Tillerman 50th Anniversary Edition. I've I've seen it. And it's really good. He he sang the song Father and Son at his induction ceremony and sounded fantastic. That was six, seven years ago now. Right. But he still sounds good, a little bit older. And when you mix it with his voice of 1970, it sounds just fantastic. I love that whole album. I've downloaded it. Oh, really? Okay. Father and Son. The Amit Erdogan Award was given to Brian Epstein that year, and he was inducted by Peter Asher, who actually could have um, introduced him or Linda Ronstadt or both. Exactly. That's how much he had to do with it. We'll be touching on Brian Epstein in our big breakup spotlight section in a little while. He had a lot to do with the Beatles, of course, but also something to do with Simon and Garfunkel, who also broke up in 1970. We'll get to that in and just that a little And that I did while. not know, so it'll be interesting to hear that. Our spotlight year is 1970. I'm really excited about getting to this year, Frankie, because as I said in previous episodes, when I started listening to radio, you kind of lock yourself in your room, you're doing your homework and doing your thing, right? That's right. 1970 was the first year I really got with the music. Um, I, You know, Frigid Pink and, and, and Shocking Blue and some of the names of the artists were fantastic. Oh, Guess absolutely. Who and CCR and, and they weren't the only ones with a, a bad sounding name. I know. Bad Company was still a few years away, but Bad Finger was signed to the Apple record label. You know, Paul McCartney had a lot to do with their beginning, so did George Harrison. But Bad Finger's original name was the Ivies, but to sound more in line with the tougher-sounding names like Shocking Blue and Frigid Pink and T-Rex, they changed their name to Bad Finger. And the usual artists that you'll recognize also had top albums that year, like The Beatles and Let It Be. Uh, their their swan song, although it was technically not the last one they recorded. Uh, Abbey Road gets that reward, but the last that was released, and it was the only one that was produced by uh, Mr. Phil Spector. With the wall of sound. That's exactly right. Years later, Paul McCartney would get together with a couple of producers and redo the Let It Be album without that wall of sound, and it was a stripped-down version and really, really good, called Let It Be Naked. came out in 2003 and maybe one of the last CDs I purchased before I started downloading everything. Led Zeppelin, three. What'd you think of that one? Loved it. Uh, Continued their winning streak and would set the table for the great Led Zeppelin four, which would be coming the next year. One of the bands that I knew about, but uh, I didn't follow, Black Sabbath. Their debut album, Black Sabbath. What'd you think of Black Sabbath as a group? Uh, I... Like some of their things they do, uh, it was a little bit overpowering for me at times, and the whole Black Sabbath and devil thing, we've talked about that a little bit before, was not my cup of tea. But as far as a group, you know, looking back at them now, at my age, I can see how uh, that they had a lot of great stuff. Me too. 
classic rock staple, Mountain. You know the song Mississippi Queen, their album called Climbing, debuted in 1970. Santana, Abraxas. We already talked about Santana. That's one of, they're one of my favorite groups. Carlos Santana is just a master at the guitar. Velvet Underground and Loaded, The Stooges and Funhouse, The Who, our featured artist of this week, live at Leeds. Neil Young's After the Gold Rush, Chicago 2, although it wasn't called Chicago 2 at the time, but that was right. That was a, a really good album by them. We've talked Is about that. that the in the past. Blue Album, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Grand Funk Railroad, Closer to Home. Speaking of home, that was recorded at Cleveland Recording, right downtown in was Cleveland, it? Ohio. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Top songs, 1970. You can't really talk about rock and roll, as we've said, without filling in all the gaps, and that means Carpenters. That's right. Bread. Bobby Sherman. Jackson 5 started out of the box with three straight number ones. I want you back. ABC and I'll be there. Not to be outdone, the Carpenters, close to you. We've only just begun all in 1970. Wow. Good songs. Great artists. Terrific songs. Great artists. Great time. Richard Carpenter is still one of my favorite artists. He had that layered sound, you know, um, such a great performer. Just love watching him play the piano. He's been on some PBS specials over the years. And, I've, I think I've seen a couple of them, and, yeah. And you know, some guys can play the notes. Right. Richard Carpenter plays music. Like, okay. I really love listening to that guy play. And what a performer and arranger. Guy was one of my favorites of all time. Puts it all together. Yeah. We talked about how they called him Goody Four Shoes. And yeah, yeah. But, boy, did they have a good career. And it all started with, well, it started with Ticket to Ride. But then Close to You really hit it big. The AMM sure. record label with, you know, the Herb Albert, Jerry Moss, which was uh, the biggest in- independent label at the time, AM Records. Okay, so Bread also, Make It With You. They were on the Electra record label. That's right. And uh, David Gates and Make It With You, number one, one of the first number ones uh, on the AT40 countdown uh, back in 1970s. You know, that started out in July 4th with Casey Kasem. Right. 1970 was not without its bubblegum hits and one-hit wonders. Check out this list from the same year, 1970. A number five hit for Edison Lighthouse, Love Grows, Where My Rosemary Goes. The White Plains, hit number 13, With My Baby Loves Lovin'. Brotherhood of Man, United We Stand, and The Pipkins. Remember, Gimme That Ding? Of course. In the summer, it hit number nine in 1970. You would think they're all different groups, right? No, all the same singer, Tony Burroughs, and the same songwriters, Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway, who also wrote hits like Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress by the Hollies, along with band member Alan Clark, 1972. And remember, You've Got Your Troubles, I've Got Mine, The Fortunes. They also wrote the song, which would be a big Coca-Cola campaign, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. That was a Clark and Greenaway uh, composition. Really? And they wrote songs uh, all the way through the 70s. Roger went on to become a prolific songwriter and producer. In fact, to this day, Roger Cook is still the only Brit to be inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. And um, uh, Tony Burroughs went on to a solo career, which didn't amount to much. So he became a session singer, a backup singer for prolific English artists like Rod Stewart and Cliff Richard. He also sang backing vocals on Levon and Tiny Dancer. So each of those men still living in the UK and still doing their thing and had great careers, each and every one of them in their own right. Jackson 5, what do you think of the Jackson 5? Oh, I love their music. Uh, you know, who could not love a young Michael Jackson before everything happened to him and he became a different person 
along the way, but back then it was so innocent and, uh, you know, it was just a lot of fun to listen to. You could say sweet and innocent. Exactly. So they to, to steal from the Osmonds. Yeah, the Osmonds <laughs> and anybody who had a Tiger Beat magazine knew right. all about them. And exactly. David Cassidy and the Partridge family, they were big that year too. They started out the end of 70 with I Think I Love You. That also hit That's number right. one. And if ever, anybody went ice skating, you know what, what those songs are like. Sure. DJ Thomas, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We talked about that in the past, how that song won the uh, Academy Award for Best Song. And then the next year was theme from Shaft. Exactly. What a difference. Neil Diamond's Cracklin' Rosie, George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. He got into trouble for that, didn't he? A few he years sure later. did. Still don't know how they get that out of that. He's, He's so, so fine. fine, yeah. And George Harrison, one of the most prolific songwriters of all time, I can't imagine he would wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to write a number one song and it's going to sound just like <laughs> He's So Fine, and nobody's going to know the difference. Exactly. The Beatles, The Long and Winding Road, Guess Who, American Woman, and uh, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water, Sly and the Family Stone, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. Oh, I like uh, like Sly uh, and the Family Stone. They were a great group at the time. I guess the biggest problem with them is that uh, Sly Stone couldn't show up for concerts. He was constantly either late or didn't show up at all. And as you know, if you've got 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden, you don't want to stand them up. That's not going to work for long. Not for long. Edwin Starr and War, that was recorded under the Gordy label at Hitsville, Michigan. And it was the number one hit for him in June of 1970, a really good, powerful anti-war protest song by Edwin Starr. So in June 1970, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young wasted no time getting out uh, the song Ohio just about a month after the tragedy and Kent State on May 4th. What did you think about Ohio, that protest song? Well, one of Neil Young's uh, greatest moments, obviously. Uh, Just a genius record, and boy, talk about For the Times. You can't beat it. And it's it's sad that it's kind of... uh, our state name is kind of written in there forever in kind of a black moment, but um, hopefully in the long run it caused some good things to happen. I think that's what Neil was saying. David Crosby, who wept when he recorded one of those first takes, said that uh, maybe this would actually finally cause some change to happen by 1970. Absolutely. War was still going on, but uh, things were getting ugly. Campuses were being closed down, and and that happened. It was recorded in just a few takes, Ohio, by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Also in 1970, this was not the first time we heard from Quicksilver Messenger Service. That's right. But their one and only hit that made the charts was Fresh Air. That was a really cool song. They were still doing the psychedelic thing even as we hit the new decade, weren't they? Yes, have another hit of Fresh Air. Not so good songs. Always my favorite. This is one of my favorite topics. We'll run down a few. Get your thoughts. Vanity Fair, Hitchin' a Ride. Oh, that's awful. My sister's favorite, Bobby Sherman. He had just come out with that that show on ABC, Here Come the Brides. Here Come the Brides. I remember that show. Which you can still see on uh, Playback TV somewhere. Julie, Do You Love Me? Easy Come and Easy Go. That was originally found on the Mama Cass album called Bubblegum, Lemonade, and Something for Mama. Oh, my goodness. Poor Mama Cass. 
Poor Mama Cass and poor Patches, Clarence oh, Carter, yes. and Marie Snowbird, Marmalade, not Lady, Lady Marmalade, but regular Marmalade and Reflections of My Life, which you still hear once in a while on Sirius XM or right. dig really deep in one of those 70s shows. And Bobby Martin, For the Love of Him, Make Him a Reason for Living. Oh, my goodness. Remember a couple years after that, it was I Am Woman by Helen Reddy. So this might have been the last Hear great me roar. About, you know, song about uh, making your man happy when he comes home from work. That's and, right. That's right. But on the plus side, Breakout Artists, 1970. Of course, some of these were um, artists performed with bands in the past, like Eric Clapton. But I wasn't much of an Eric Clapton fan at first. But just like anything else, you kind of get used to it. Friends kind of fill you in. Maybe you borrow one of their CDs or one of their albums, and it turns you on to the artist, doesn't it? Exactly. Uh, James Taylor, Sweet Baby James, released in February of 1970. Produced by Peter Asher. They recorded the album Sweet Baby James. James was homeless. He was living on somebody's couch, I guess, and recorded it in a month. The original budget that Warner Brothers gave them was $20,000, and they recorded it for a mere 8000 Wow. I guess with him and the guitar and Russ Kunkel, you know. Yeah, they exactly. put that together, and what a great album that was. Elton John, his Elton John release in April 1970, featured the Border song. I didn't know that song until Elton John's Greatest Hits came out a few years later because I, I didn't really get with Elton John until your song or even after that I don't even think I listened to Leave On or uh, Madman Mad Across, Across the Water, the water yeah the first time I, I really started getting with Elton John was with Honky Cat in 1972 and by then he'd been around for almost three years exactly he and Bernie Taupin kind of hooked up together to be the songwriting and the music uh, duo and what a songwriting duo that was I guess That's they were sure. both doing their own stuff and it wasn't working so the record company put them together, and the rest is history, as what they say. What a brilliant move that was. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and Ringo Starr played drums on the 70s album Plastic Ono Band, also on All Things Must Pass, and Living in the Material World and Dark Horse. So Ringo Starr, who started doing stuff in 1970 with John and, and George Harrison, right. wouldn't hit it big till It Don't Come Easy a, a year later. But So he was still doing stuff after the demise of the Beatles. They really didn't waste any time, did they, putting out their solo stuff. McCartney and, and Lennon with uh, Imagine, it didn't take too long, did it? Well, I think it just shows that they were ready. You know, uh, you, can't, you can't have that much material ready to go if you aren't ready to make a move. And I think that's what happened. The triple album set, All Things Must Pass, released just in time for Christmas, November of 1970, also appearing on the album, members of Bad Finger, and a young musician named Gary Wright. That's right. We'll talk about about Gary in a future episode, 1976, when he was a top breakout artist. Now, the Jackson 5, we talked about how they had four straight number ones. Paul Davis also started out as a solo artist, uh, Cool Night and Sweet Life and, and, right. and, and Do Right. Now, his father was a traveling missionary. They went all over the world, Paul Davis. So you can see where his songs reflected that of his belief in God. And perhaps, um, I don't know if he was a missionary himself, but it kind of rubs off on you, doesn't it, when that's Absolutely. what your father does and you're traveling from place to place, not unlike a military kid. Diana Ross also started her solo career in 1970. We were talking about how you can't start off without having some stuff already in the bank, right? That's you right. You have to have some, some she, good ideas. It was time for her to break away from the Supremes, and she, uh, she did it with uh, great style. Well, she did. And you know why they call them backup singers? Because artists like Diana Ross are always telling these guys, hey, back up. <laughs> Eric Clapton, of course, was uh, in blind faith 
Cream, the John Mayle, and the Yardbirds, and uh, came out with that album in 1970. It featured After Midnight and Blues Power and Let That's It Rain. Right. Fleetwood Mac started recording in the late 60s, was trying to get, find their way. They were touring a little bit. Uh, they didn't really get much traction until they added Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. They'll be one of our featured artists uh, in upcoming episodes. We talked about Absolutely. the Carpenters, that duo from California by way of New Haven, Connecticut. And A&M Records was an interesting uh, label. They have signed artists like Styx, Peter Frampton, Joe Cocker, The Police, Cat Stevens, The Human League, Gin Blossoms. The list just goes on and on. Oh, yeah. Terrific label. And Bread, David Gates leading that soft rock group. They had a string of hits and kind of like The Carpenters or John, Le- John Denver. Kind of tailed off and, you know, as the late 70s came, they had a big hit with Lost Without Your Love and... And then they kind of fizzled. That's exactly right. Gordon Lightfoot, one of your favorites, the native of Ontario, Canada, now in his early 80s, been active since 1958, but finally hit it big in December of that year with a number five song in the U.S. called If You Could Read My Mind. What a great song that was. What would 1970 be without a nice dose of one-hit wonders? The first one from the Ides of March at hit number two in the United States, written by frontman Jim Paterek, who would become a founding member of the group Survivor, vehicle by the Ides of March. Now, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum, featured in the movie Apollo 13, of course. That was a number three song in April of 1970. What would you think about Spirit in the Sky? I love the tune. What a great tune that is. Words are kind of goofy. There's some kind of spiritual, godlike, transcendental stuff in there. But be that as it may, the tune is just a great tune. Do you think the record label wanted him to change his name, or did they have him change it to Norman Greenbaum? I don't know. I don't know either. Blues Image, Ride Captain Ride. What you think of that number four hit? Excellent uh, song. Uh, never heard of Blues Image again course but uh ride captain ride was a was a fun song for them and also was a hit for uh blood sweat and tears a few years later free came out with all right now and although we didn't hear from free again we did hear from paul rogers who sang vocals for bad company and other bands and that song in 1970 in the summer went to number four all right now what'd you think Loved All Right Now is one of the great dance tunes of all time. And still heard today on classic rock stations all over the place. Oh, yeah. 1970 brought us big breakups. Frankie, Simon, and Garfunkel. At the end, they weren't even recording together. Bridge Over Troubled Water, that was the name of the album and the number one song. I kind of liked it, but it didn't sound like Simon and Garfunkel to me, did it to you? Well, I love the love the record, but you're right. Cecilia, that was more their their thing. Right, stuff. exactly. Um, so I liked Simon and Garfunkel. I really didn't care when they broke up because I knew that they would be doing their solo stuff. And Paul Simon. And just, sure enough, you know, it didn't take long for Paul Simon to break loose. No, it didn't. He co-wrote the song Red Rubber Ball along with Bruce Woodley of the group The Seekers. The group The Circle recorded the song in 1966. They were the opening act for Simon and Garfunkel, and they were discovered, The Circle was, and really pushed hard by Brian Epstein of The Beatles. So okay. The Circle and Red Rubber Ball, which was written by Paul Simon, 
um, was an opening act for Simon and Garfunkel in the mid-60s and also became the opening act for the Beatles' final U.S. tour, where they performed as the opener for 14 of their shows, including the last one at Candlestick Park. Great bit of trivia there. By the way, if you have that single, make sure you hang on to it. It's one of the most sought-after singles out there, and you can get upwards of three figures if you have the single, by the circle, Red Rubber Ball. And by My the way... My sister had it. She did. She did. It could be worth something if she I still has know. it. I don't know. I don't know where we'd find it now. Tell her to look through the... I know where I'd find mine. It's probably in my my brother's box of baseball cards. Exactly. Red Rubber Ball by The Circle. And The Circle was spelled, by the way, C-Y-R-K-L-E. That was a John Lennon idea. He said, it looks catchy, so use it. So Simon and Garfunkel actually met in uh, elementary school in the early 50s, performed under the name Tom and Jerry, and was signed to a record deal by none other than Clive Davis of Columbia Records, who we've... Spoken about in the past, I think everybody who was anybody was found by Clive Davis on the Columbia album. Especially for Columbia Records, yeah. Records or Arista. Sounds of Silence for Emily, wherever she may be. Nice short songs, most of them under two minutes, right in that category. April Come She Will. Mrs. Robinson. Remember that movie? great song. They reunited for My Little Town in 1976 and then again for that famous concert in Central Park in 1981, the double album. It was an album. It was a DVD. That's one that I have on all three formats, a DVD, CD, and an album. That's right. That's right. It attracted more than a half a million people to Central Park that night. I'm glad it didn't rain, but what a (laughs) show that was. They won more than a dozen Grammys, inducted in 1990. Paul Simon was inducted as a solo artist as well. And that was it for them as a group, 1970. It all started in 1953. They started making hits in 65, 66. And right. kind of like the Beatles, star rises and, and then comes down and falls. Sunsets on their duo career. The Beatles. March of 1970 sent shockwaves through the rock and roll world with their breakup announcement. What'd you think, Frankie? Do you remember where you were? No, I don't remember where I was, but I do remember it being a sad, sad time because Mm. the Beatles were the first group that I grew up with. I mean, literally from Ed Sullivan on, you can remember everything about them. And all of a sudden, they were no more. And I didn't understand, 14 years old, I didn't understand why. No idea. It had to be good, so why not just keep going? Well, that's what I thought. I was in my room listening to music, March of 1970. I do remember when the announcement came down. It's not like you could see it on Twitter or right, react exactly. on social media. But uh, I was outraged. I thought, wait, why are they done? Are they going to keep recording? Uh, will they ever get back together again? And that was, up until John's tragic death, that was the the deal of the 70s. You know, even even Lorne Michaels wanted to... Put the Beatles back together again. Remember that little skit he had with George? Right, Harrison? I think he, he offered, offered him a dollar or something like that. Seventy-five dollars. <laughs> George called it chintzy to, to, <laughs> to come on down and uh, play a couple of songs. So the Beatles did play together a little, little bit here and there. Um, not all together as a band, not that we know of anyway. No. Years later, they had the compilation albums come out in 1995 or six, where they had "Free Free as a Bird" and and other tunes like that. So they they dug up some of the songs that they were working on before they broke up, and they had John's voice on there, so that was kind of nice, and the videos that went with it. So the Beatles' March of 1970 were done, but then off they went on their own, Paul McCartney and George and Ringo, 
John? Well, that's one of the things that uh, John Lennon said at the time. He said that uh, everybody keeps asking, why no Beatles? Why no Beatles? Why does it have to change? He said, all we've been talking about for the last 10 years is change. So it could, this goes along, right along with everything else we've done. Times change, and we changed, and um, now we can embrace four Beatles uh, albums in a year instead of just one. That brings us up to our featured artist, a band from London, England, that's been around since 1964. They started out as the Detours, came in as a big part of the British Revolution. They performed at the Monterey Pop Festival and at Woodstock and at Live Aid and at the Summer Olympics in London in 2012. They were a Super Bowl halftime show. They've done dozens of studio and live albums, hundreds and hundreds of concerts. They've broken up. They've done stuff on their own. They've reunited. They've lost two members of their band and are still at it today, one of the greatest of all time, Frankie the Who. And they've had about uh, four, four or five different reunion tours uh, after they uh, said, nope, we're not going to play anymore, we're done. They got back together again. So, yeah, um, love the Who. Obviously, one of my favorite groups of all time uh, would be in the top five of any list that I would make out. And really, they had kind of had three different careers. Their first career was the English part of it, where they had a lot of singles, like uh, "Happy Playing My Generation," "Happy, Happy Jack, Jack," yeah, that kind of thing. And then they turned into a, a album band with uh, starting with Tommy, "Who's Next," "Who by Numbers," uh, brilliant albums. And then when they lost. I think when they lost Keith Moon, they seemed to lose a little bit of their their heart and soul. Because after that, they really didn't do any great. You can't name a great album that they did after um, Who Are You, which was the last one that they did with him. Mm-hmm. So I think at that point, I think they became more of a classic rock touring band, you know, playing the hits. They came out with that album, Face Dances, in March of 81, which featured You Better, You Bet. But by then. Pete Townsend had had that empty glass. The solo career was really hitting for him. McVicker right. was the uh, movie that Roger Daltrey starred in, and uh, he started doing some solo stuff. So by the early 80s, the song called Eminence Front. Eminence in, Front you know, is, 81, a, is still a great song. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Inducted in the Hall of Fame 1990, they've sold more than 100 million albums worldwide. Wow. They released Tommy in May of 1969, the rock opera mostly written by Pete Townsend. No surprise there, he's written most of their tunes. He's a great songwriter. Oh, he's tremendous. And, yeah, I think that's the reason that uh, he and Roger Daltrey are still together to this day because they've got two different ends of the thing. Uh, Roger has the voice, one of the greatest voices of all time in rock and roll. Can't deny that. But then Pete Townsend can write it. So put it together and had a great group. If you take those, each of those apart, it's not quite as good as the whole. We talked about the Monterey Pop Festival, how they performed there, and at Woodstock. They didn't take the stage till about sunup on uh, the Sunday morning at like 5 a.m. And wouldn't you know, activist Abby Hoffman hopped on stage, grabbed the mic, and, and made a speech about uh, the arrest of John Sinclair. And Pete Townsend had no idea who he was. I'm sure some of the people in the audience did. But later on, a couple of years later, John Lennon would take credit for John Sinclair's 
released from prison after writing that protest song about the release of John Sinclair. So they made a big deal out of it in 1969. Abby Hoffman did on stage. Pete Townsend right. had some choice expletives for Abby, who he may or may not have known, grabbed the microphone back, and they continued to perform. As I remember, kicked him the hell off his stage. <laughs> <laughs> Next up was Live at Leeds. We talked about that. Their first live album released in 1970. Then came Who's Next, August of 71, their fifth studio album. Baba O'Reilly, Won't Get Fooled Again, Behind Blue Eyes, The Song Is Over. What a great album that was. Not a weak song on there. Um, truly one of those records where every song on it was a keeper. No filler on there at all. Talk about changing with the times. Like Marvin Gaye did in 1971 with the, the album What's Going On, you know, he shifted from the Ain't That Peculiar and work he did with Tammy Terrell. Right. Uh, nice little right. pop tunes, Motown, to more reflective, more introspective stuff. Mm-hmm. But The Who went from My Generation and Happy Jack and I Can't Explain to something that was totally perfect for the 70s and that Who's Next album really captured that. I'm not sure a My Generation type of pop song would have worked for The Who as you moved into the 70s. Exactly. An early song of theirs that I really like was recorded in May of 1965 and actually released on my birthday that year, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere. So that song did not chart here in the U.S. The Decca Records label rejected it because of the song's use of pick sliding, toggle switching, and feedback. In other words, just the the usual stuff that they do on every record nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Magic Bus at uh, number 25. It was recorded in 1965 with My Generation, but not released until three years later, just ahead of Pinball Wizard. I, in fact, I was thinking that, that about the only one that I can remember being a fairly big hit was I Can See for Miles. Yeah, um, the song Pinball Wizard, John Entwistle didn't like it. He said it sounded the same, uh, you know, he had to play bass, so um, he said you play the same note throughout, it's boring. But it was actually covered by uh, one of your favorite groups in the mid-'80s, Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> That's right. For their TV special. Alvin and the Chipmunks. Won't Get Fooled Again, released in June 71 from Who's Next, one of my favorite rock tunes of all time. Absolutely. Next up, The Who by Numbers, released in November 75. Their double entendre song, Squeeze Box, came out earlier in the uh, 76 and peaked at number 16 in the Billboard Top 40. What would you think of Squeeze Box? I thought it was a fun song. Uh, well, probably one of my least like Who songs, um, just because it of the, uh, as you said, the double entendre, and it's kind of silly. And uh, that kind of drives me crazy when a group has so many great songs and that's the one they focus on. The Who by Numbers, their seventh studio release, apparently... Pete Townsend was feeling a little blue, a little down, coping with the fact that he was old at 30. Wow. Uh, Also, he was a little melancholy. He felt that the music industry had left them behind. So he was uh, a little down, had a little bit of writer's block. And as you know, he wrote all those songs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. uh, Outside of a couple. But we didn't hear from The Who after that until 1978 with Who Are You? Who Are You, yeah. It was a couple years. And at the time, when people were putting out albums every year, it was uh, unusual to hear The Who without a live or a soundtrack or, or something. Something going oh, on, in 1977, yeah. they would have fit right in that year, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Keith Moon died in September of 1978, so the Who Are You album is last. In mid-78, he rented the same flat from Harry Nielsen, where Cass Elliott had died. Nielsen thought it was uh, cursed. Turned out to be right, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. 
John Entwistle passed away in 2002, a day before their U.S. tour was about to begin. Cocaine overdose and heart disease cited as the cause of death, so he and Keith Moon have both been gone for a goodly amount of time. So in 1979, in December, remember the tragedy which occurred at Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati. The Who was on stage not to perform just yet. They were doing their sound check, but the fans mistakenly thought that it was the real show. So they crashed what few gates were open, and at the time they had that festival seating. The Who did not even know that this tragedy had occurred up until after the show. In fact, I saw their next concert. The very next concert was here in Cleveland, and I was at the the very next concert they had. Some of their best albums, Who Are You, Quadrophenia. We haven't touched on that. What did you think about Quadrophenia, the, the soundtrack, the rock opera, you know? I, I enjoyed it. Um, I don't think it's as strong uh, song for song as Tommy, but it still is a great uh, record. I also saw them do it uh, in, its, in its entirety uh, with uh, such... Um, they had with them uh, Gary Glitter and um, hmm. Billy Idol also, I believe. Now, those two artists, Gary Glitter and Billy Idol, wow, goodness. Where oh. would you come up with those two, right? What do you think of Pete Townsend as a solo artist, especially with the album Empty Glass, 1980? Like his, I liked the arc of his uh, solo career. It was uh, a lot of good stuff, although I'm not, I still like The Who better together than apart. Just because I don't like his voice as much. His voice gets old after a song or two. Okay, I've had enough. It's a little bit thready, a little bit uh, uh, not as forceful, not as... I mean, he's working with one of the greats of rock and roll history. For Frank Ost, Frank, thanks for joining us and having uh, your insight again. It's always excellent. I'm Tim Friedman, your host. Next time around, we'll talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees 2013. Our featured artist will be Linda Ronstadt, one of the greatest voices in history. That's all next time. Thanks for joining us on Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. Conversations.